Grace and peace and welcome to Cokesbury United Methodist Church here in Woodbridge, Virginia. My name is Taylor Mertens and I serve as the pastor here. It is a privilege to be the pastor of this church and a joy to be worshiping with you today, whether you're joining us on Facebook or on YouTube. Uh, these are strange times that we're in uh, and we're going to continue to worship like this for the foreseeable future online. I'm delighted that you're with us. If uh, an online bulletin is helpful for you, you can find ours. Uh, the a link for finding it is in the video description. It will contain our hymn, scriptures, all that sort of important stuff. I uh, want to share with you a couple announcements of things that are going on in the life of our church. We're continuing to send out weekly devotionals, making live videos for our Facebook page, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but one exciting thing is that by popular demand, we're going to be having uh, another drive-in service of Word and Sacrament. It's happening a week from today, September 27th, Sunday, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon in our parking lot. We will have our normal 11 o'clock worship service online next Sunday, but we will also have the drive-in service. It'll be about 20 to 30 minutes, uh, a few prayers, scripture, brief homily, but also communion. Uh, if you are able to join us, uh, there'll be an email that we'll send out this week with some uh, instructions about what it looks like, but otherwise plan to join us at 4 o'clock next Sunday, the 27th of September, where we'll be gathering in our parking lot for a service of word and sacrament that we might be able to see each other in the flesh through our windshields. Uh, with that, I want to share that um, we're continuing to go through a sermon series on Philippians. I've been encouraging folk every week to try as they're able to read through the entirety of Philippians. It should only take about 10 to 15 minutes. But if you uh, don't have a Bible or you don't have the time to read it, you can listen to me. I've recorded a, a version of myself reading Philippians out loud. You can find it on our church Facebook page and also on YouTube. So that over this uh, period of going through Philippians in church, we'll also be steeping ourselves in the word as much as possible. And then also I want to share with you a story. A number of years ago when I was at my first church, we had a confirmation class, a group of uh, middle schoolers who wanted to confirm their faith in the Lord. And I met with them weekly, Sunday afternoons, and we went through sort of the basics of faith. We talked about scripture and creeds and sacraments and all that sort of stuff. And when we were going through the scriptures and we got to Paul's letters, I was every week trying to think of different and sort of imaginative ways to embody what's going on in the different scriptures. So I encouraged the kids from one week to the next to write a letter to their parents. 
because uh, one of the things that Paul does in his letters to the churches is he's, he's brutally honest with them about uh, either things they're doing wrong or things they're doing right that they need to be commended for. And so I said to the kids, hey, I want you to write a note, a letter to your parents, and I want you to be brutally honest with them about things you love about your parents and even things that you, you don't love about your parents. And I promise your parents will never see these letters. Write them and then bring them to me, and I will compile some of the things that you've said so I can share them with everyone without, you know, giving away who said what about whom. So the kids took the assignment over a week. They went home, and they thought about it, and they wrote down these letters to their parents, and then they brought them back to me. And over the next week, I sort of read through them, and I tried to compile similarities that they had. Like, for instance, a few of our kids all said some version of, I wish you wouldn't hound me about cleaning my room all the time. I know where my things are. I like it this way, that sort of stuff. Uh, some of them were really, really sweet and kind. Like, you know, one of the things I love about my, my mom is the way that she uh, writes little notes and puts them in my lunchbox at school every day. I mean, that's kind of like an embarrassing thing you might not want to admit to your mother face-to-face, but then there's something about the disconnect of writing in a letter where you feel like you could actually write it. But of course, there were some pretty serious ones too. And there's one that will forever stay with me. I remember reading through all these and kind of laughing at some of the answers. And then one of our kids was, he took it very, very seriously. And he wrote, Dad, I wish you weren't so racist. And this was a middle schooler reflecting on his father. And I've thought about that over the years because it seems like that wasn't something the kid ever felt like he could say to his father. And I think it's something that we as Christians are afraid to ever say to anybody else. And yet, the life of faith is a life of truth, a life of honesty about being able to say to others, hey, what you're doing is contrary to the gospel. The way that you hate a particular group of people because of their color of their skin is incompatible with the doctrines and the teachings of the church. But for some reason, we don't feel like we can say that stuff to each other. Except I think Paul kind of does today. So I encourage you to sort of keep that in mind as we continue to move toward God in worship today, that we might hear what God is saying about who we are and importantly, whose we are. So let's prepare our hearts and minds for worship by being with God silently for a few moments. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful, wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know the truth of our hearts, our intentions, our desires. You know the things we've done that we shouldn't have done. You know the things we haven't done that we should have done. And yet you still chose in your son to mount the hard wood of the cross on our behalf. So it's in the knowledge of what you were willing to do for us, even though we did not deserve it and we certainly didn't earn it. We pray, Lord, that you might open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed today, we may hear with joy what you say to us. And now, Lord, we pray silently or aloud to you, lifting up our own particular joys and concerns this day.
and as you taught us, Lord, so now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Only, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our hymn today is number 533 in the United Methodist Hymnal, We Shall Overcome. Uh, so join me and Gloria Baltimore over on the drums and the piano as we play and sing together, We Shall Overcome. Go for it, I'll follow you.
For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was a beautiful Sunday morning in early fall. Families were making their way from the parking lot into the church building. All the children were wearing matching outfits, and the sanctuary windows were open uh, to let in the cool fall air. The preacher was pacing in his office, looking over his notes for a sermon that he had titled, A Love That Forgives. He was momentarily grateful that the children's choir would be singing that morning and that no matter how his preaching landed, most people would be pleased just to hear the little ones singing. When the Sunday school hour arrived, the adults went to their side of the building while the children went to their own, and all in attendance that morning examined their Bibles. They gleaned from God's holy word, all while covering it with local community gossip. And shortly before the worship service was scheduled to start, a group of girls were giggling in the church basement restroom as they were changing into their choir robes for the service. And that's when the bomb exploded. It shook the entire building and it propelled the little girls' bodies through the air like ragdolls. A passing motorist was blown out of his car. Every single stained glass window in the building was destroyed except for one. It was a picture of Jesus leading a group of young children. It was Sunday, September 15th, 1963, 57 years ago this week. Four little girls were declared dead on the scene. Another 20 people were injured by the explosion, and the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, would never be the same. A few days later, Martin Luther King Jr. would describe the event as one of the most vicious and tragic crimes ever perpetrated against humanity. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wrote that to the Philippians from a jail cell. And that is one of the greatest declarations in all of Paul's letters, and in fact, in all of Scripture. It cuts right to the heart of this thing called faith. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Life and death are both centered wholly in Jesus Christ. Whether we live or we die, we are with Jesus. In baptism, we are deadened like Jesus, that we might be raised with Jesus. This, for Paul, is like the treasure in the field or the pearl of great price, and he has laid it all on the line to obtain this one thing. And he can write about it with such conviction while a convict because he knows Christ and Christ crucified. Paul's life was turned upside down by the Lord on the road to Damascus, and here in jail he knows deep in his bones while behind bars that it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. Paul, to put a finer point on it, has been assaulted by the grace of God, a violent and merciful grace that knows no bounds. When Paul writes of joy to the Philippian church, to this community of faith struggling under the weight of the world and opposition from the wider community, he does so because he has been confronted with a hope he didn't deserve. Paul persecuted the early church. He derided those who believed in a risen Messiah, and then he was offered a position in the evangelism department. Paul went from town to town, city to city, sharing the good news with people who had nothing but bad news, used himself as a primary example, which is why Paul writes here of being comfortable with his fate, whatever it may be. He knows. He knows that he belongs to God, whether he lives 
or he dies. And it's in knowing that he doesn't know what will happen next, he encourages the Philippians to rest in the knowledge that he cares for them deeply, just as God does, that regardless of outcome, God has already overcome the world, which leads him to the line that, if we've ever heard this bit from Philippians before, it's probably the line we know best. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. I mean, the solitary sentence, if you take it out of context, it's been used on a great number of occasions to malign Christians for not being good enough. Pastors like me have stood in places like this telling people like you that you're not living in a manner worthy of the gospel, so it's about time you start turning things around, you know? Stop sinning, start repenting, pray harder, do more, all that stuff. And yet Paul's proclamation about living in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's, it's much more subtle than all of that. Living in a manner worthy of, it comes from this Greek word, polistuste, which is from what we get polis and even politics. And the word carries with it these political overtones. And while on the surface it might just seem like Paul wants the Christians in Philippi to start behaving themselves, he's actually contrasting one form of citizenship with another. And throughout the rest of the letter, he will continue to hold these two different identities against one another and remind the church that their citizenship, that their Christian community's citizenship is of a higher priority than Roman citizenship. Now, faith and politics, they've never been easy to sort out, and there's always been disagreement about how these two things relate to each other. Now, for the Philippians, it was of crucial importance because everywhere they turned, they were bombarded by the power of Rome, whether it was through festivals or statues or calendars or coins or temples or all kinds of different cultural phenomena. It's as if Paul is saying to them, look, I know the empire can seem powerful and that there's no way you can get away from it. And perhaps there's some truth to that. But as disciples of Jesus, if there is a conflict between your politics and your faith, your loyalty is first to Jesus, and your heavenly citizenship is what's most important. The faithful in Philippi, though they live on earth, they are citizens of heaven. Philippi was a, a Roman military colony on the outskirts of empire, and Paul is writing to them as inhabitants of this place, knowing that they would inevitably come in to conflict with the powers and the principalities of their surrounding politics. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, for us today, any talk of politics from the pulpit or from church is enough to make us squirm with discomfort. We've been told, even from infancy, that the United States was founded upon a separation of church and state, which means on some practical level that some of us don't want to hear about politics when we're in church. Some of us get enough politics Monday through Saturday that we want a little reprieve here on Sunday morning. And yet Paul, Paul writes to this church in Philippi, and he's writing to us today to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to, as the Greek hints, to live as if we believe our realist citizenship, our truest citizenship is with God and not with country. Do this, Paul says, so that whether I'm able to join you or not, I will hear that you remain firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the sake of the good news. Now, while the members of the 16th Street Baptist Church were preparing for worship 57 years ago this week, while they were waking up early that fall morning, four white men drove over to the church in the early light of day, and they planted sticks of dynamite under the steps of the church in order to rain down murder and destruction. 
All four of those men were members of the United Clans of America, an offshoot of the KKK, an organization that swears to uphold Christian morality. It was according to their Christian convictions that they felt compelled to bomb and murder other Christians because of the color of their skin. Three days after the bombing, Martin Luther King Jr. preached at the funeral for the four girls who were murdered. In it, he said that their deaths have something to say to all of us. He said, They have something to say to every minister of the gospel who has remained silent behind the safe security of stained glass windows. They have something to say to every politician who has fed his constituents with the stale bread of hatred and the spoiled meat of racism. They say to each of us, black and white alike, that we must substitute courage for caution. They say to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, and the philosophy which produced the murderers. Paul says it like this, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. I know that hearing about the bombing of a church nearly 60 years ago can feel like the distant past. It can feel like we've moved on from that stained part of our history. But friends, things have largely stayed the same. The last few months of protests have been an ever-present ringing reminder that things haven't changed And it's not just the matters that dominate the news cycle, the unjust murders of black individuals at the hands of the police. It's about so much more than that. It's in every fabric of our lives from the way that black women, pregnant women, die in childbirth at a far higher rate than pregnant white women to black students being punished for with higher severity than white students for making the same mistakes to the disproportionate number of black men who are in prison. I could go on and on. And yet, even with all of that, A study was published this week by the Barna Group, and that study found that 30% of Christians, that is, people who have attended some form of worship in the last month and who claim to strongly prioritize their faith, 30% of Christians in the United States say they are not motivated to engage in matters of racial injustice. And now somehow, that's an increase from 2019 when the number was 17% said they were unmotivated. You know, one might imagine that the last few months of racially motivated moments in this country might change Christians' perspectives on racial injustice. But when you look at white Christians, the old patterns hold true. And all that is even further problematized by that, that on that same study, they found that a third of practicing Christians, more than 33% in the study, cited religious leaders, people like me, clergy, as the most influential type of leader that they are willing to listen to about racial justice. Contrary to how we, that is, those of us who are white, might want things to go, the black church has never had the luxury of keeping politics out of the pulpit. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke politically and faithfully when he implored those in attendance at the funeral for the four girls to see that there would be work to do, and there is still work to do. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. For God has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Suffering for Jesus will always raise questions about where our ultimate allegiances reside. As the Lord says, we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve Jesus and racism at the same time. We cannot serve God and white supremacy at the same time. The life of faith is confusing, and it can be complicated. 
It's not just about receiving a list of to-do items and then heading out in the world to fix it. It's about catching glimpses of how God has already overcome the world and then start living accordingly. It's not about feeling guilty for all the things we could have done. It's about seeing that we're living in the light of grace, and it means we cannot remain as we once were. It's not about keeping our politics and our beliefs separate. It's about recognizing how what we believe shapes how we behave. Part of the complication is that we can't live in a manner worthy of the gospel. All of us do things we know we shouldn't, and all of us avoid doing things we know we should. But we can, at the very least, begin by admitting the sin we're stuck in and then asking God to help us out because there is still work to be done. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, renew your church and your people in this land. Save us from cheap words and self-deception in your service. In the power of your spirit, transform us and shape us by your cross. And all God's people say, Amen. God has gathered us together. God has proclaimed God's word. And now we respond to what God has said by giving of ourselves, our time, our efforts, our talents. But we also respond with the giving of our tithes and our offerings. I encourage you to give with glad and generous hearts to Cokesbury Church. You may do so by uh, giving online. The link for doing so is in the video description. You may send a check through the mail to the church, or if you live locally, you can bring your offering by. We have a drop slot by the main office doors. But consider giving to this church with glad and generous hearts that we might be a haven of blessing and peace for our community, that we might continue to speak the truth in love about what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Another way we like to respond to what God has said here at Cokesbury is by affirming our faith in the Lord with something like the Apostles' Creed. So please join me as we now affirm our faith using the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Throughout this time of the pandemic, as we've not been able to gather in person for worship, I've been thinking about different and other and imaginative ways for us to respond to what God is doing in the world and what God has said to us through the scriptures. And so today, uh, like those confirmands that I talked about at the beginning of the service, I encourage each of you to write a letter, uh, a letter that you don't actually send unless you're feeling very, very convicted to do so. Uh, for you, this might mean writing a letter to someone uh, um, you know in your life for whom racism is deeply seated within them uh, and to confront them about their racism, to explain and to share with them that how they're acting and speaking and thinking is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're feeling particularly motivated, you can write that letter to yourself, admitting and confessing the ways in which you've perpetuated a system of inequality in this country. And like I said, it's just helpful to write it down to begin with 
not necessarily sending it in the mail, that will probably lead to some pretty difficult conversations. But if you feel like you're in a place to do that, I encourage you to do that as well. The longer we remain silent, the more things will just stay the same. But writing it down, even if we don't send it, is a step toward admitting the truth about the condition of other people's condition and also the condition of our own condition. Because in small ways and in large, we're all perpetuating this system of racial injustice and equality that just won't seem to go away. And there's still work to do. So with that, I now encourage you to hear this blessing and benediction as we conclude our worship service together. May the God of grace and glory, God of the beginning and the end, the God of life and of death and of resurrection, help you to see a world that you cannot yet imagine, a world that does not look like this one, a world in which grace reigns supreme now and forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I look forward to gathering with you again next week, same time, same place. Go in peace, be well. Amen, amen, and amen. Hallelujah.